Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 this morning, continuing in our study through the gospel according to Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screens around the room, but it'd be great if you could follow along in a Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 15 this morning. So let me go ahead and read these for us now. The disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord God, we pray that as we turn to your word now, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we've got a lot of grounds to cover this morning, so we're just going to jump right in. But uh, before we can get to verse 10 in our text, it should be pretty obvious that we are uh, coming in right in the middle of a conversation that Jesus has been having with uh, his disciples and those that are in the big crowds that have been following him around as he makes his way to Judea. So it should, uh, we should take a moment and remind ourselves of what happened preceding this conversation that we're looking at this morning, especially what happened in verses 3 through 9. So if you were here last week, you remember that we saw Jesus interacting with his own culture's very low view of marriage and divorce. And it was uh, in that passage last week that we looked at that we saw that there was a debate, a very live debate happening in Jesus' culture about the topic of divorce. And many in his culture at the time had grabbed onto this interpretation of the Mosaic law that really allowed for divorce for any and every reason whatsoever. So there was a lot of debate centering around the Mosaic law, and Jesus's opponents came up to him to try and test him and, and trap him in a way to get him to weigh in on this debate, to, to speak to this wedge issue and take one side or the other. And, and they weren't asking with good motives. They were asking to try and uh, get Jesus in trouble, that whatever side he took, somehow it would be a means that they could use to, uh, to bring Jesus to his death, to destroy him. This has been their plan all along. Now, if you missed last week, I know a lot of you were on vacation with a holiday, and I hope you had a, a wonderful time, but you really need to go back and listen to the sermon last week, because Pastor, uh, yeah, Pastor Ryan did a great job, and he covered a lot there that we're not going to get into this morning. But, but if you were here, what you saw last week is that when Jesus answers this question about weighing in on this debate, he, he does it not by engaging in the laws that they're talking about, these laws that were put in place because of the hardness of man's heart, but Jesus engages in the debate by, by taking it all the way back to the beginning, to the creation order. When God made mankind in his image as male and female, and he created the institution of marriage as this God-appointed union, this God-ordained covenant that, that no man should separate. And so let's not miss the significance of that, again, as we come to our text this morning, with how Jesus engages with the Pharisees, because they're coming and they're asking him a very simple question. Jesus, when is divorce permissible? And Jesus' response is almost as if to say, you are asking the wrong question. You shouldn't start with the question, when is divorce permissible? You should start with the question, what is marriage? Why did God make marriage? What is it for? And what does God think about it? And once you know how to answer those questions, then you, can, then you can start to think about how to care for those marriages well. And you can think about how to navigate those sad situations when due to our hardness of heart, 
marriages are not being what God made them to be. And maybe even, yes, divorce is permissible. So I say all of that to say we shouldn't walk away from reading verses 3 through 9, and and our big takeaway is when is divorce permissible or not? We should walk away from verses 3 through 9, and we should be thinking, wow, marriage is a really big deal to God. That's what we should be thinking about, and we should feel challenged by what Jesus teaches us about marriage. That should be our interpretation of the last verses that we looked at last week. Because this is how the disciples respond. So let's look at our text now in verse 10. And if you're keeping track in your outline, this will be our first point. The high regard for marriage. So look at verse 10. The disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, what is better not to marry? My wife and I have been laughing about this verse as we've been considering this passage because we know that at least Peter was married. We don't know how many of the disciples were married, but at least Peter was married. And we were wondering, what do their wives think when they hear, you know, man, if that's really, maybe we shouldn't have gotten married. But what they're saying is, Jesus, if marriage really is as big a deal as you say, then, well, then maybe it's better for us to not make that kind of commitment if there is a chance that we would go back on our word. And of course, that response, it totally discounts all of the wonderful things that God intended for marriage. It discounts the beauty of the one flesh union and and this companionship that lasts until death do us part. And it discounts the benefit of having kids and godly offspring. It's kind of like the disciples are saying, you know, no one should ever get behind the wheel of a Corvette because you have to drive it really carefully. Well, no, you wouldn't say that. I said, yes, you should treat this car with a lot of respect, but it's awesome to get to drive it, right? That's how we should think about marriage. But, but why do the disciples have this response to what Jesus has been saying? Well, it's because they're getting the point. Marriage is a really big deal. This is not something to be entered into lightly. This is not something that you can just set aside when it stops satisfying you, where it becomes inconvenient for you somehow. This is not something that you walk away from when you no longer feel the way that you did about your spouse when you were dating. This is not something that you leave behind when you think that there's a better option out there or you would just be happier without it. No, marriage is something to be held in a high regard. And this fits so neatly with everything else that Jesus has been saying in Matthew, the nature of his teaching throughout Matthew, think especially of the Sermon on the Mount, that the way that Jesus teaches is to push his audience, to push his disciples into a greater righteousness, into a deeper understanding than the culture's hypocritical view of what it meant to obey God's law. Jesus is always saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And when Jesus teaches us, it's always to heighten and really to press down into what's going on in our hearts, to, to take God's word more seriously, to, to act more righteously, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. He is never calling us to a lower standard, but to a higher one in the kingdom. God holds marriage in a very high regard. And I hope that our church understands this. I hope that you understand this. I hope you view your own marriages the same way that God does. But be careful lest we fall into the trap of valuing marriage as an institution in itself. What I mean by that is Jesus's vision for marriage in this passage is not one where a man and a wife just realize that once they say, I do, they're stuck. And the most important thing at that point is just to not get divorced. Whatever we do, we are doing it for the sake of staying married. No, that is not Jesus' goal for our marriage. The goal for our marriage is to not just not get divorced. The goal for our marriages is to have a marriage that looks like the gospel. That's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, teaches us in Ephesians 5. This is the mystery of why God made marriage in the first place, that our marriages brothers and sisters, are to be ones that when you and your spouse look at each other, 
or if you have kids in your home, when they look at the way that you love each other, or when your non-believing neighbor across the street looks in at what's happening in your home and they see the way that you love each other, the way that you submit to one another, the way that the husbands lead as the head, and the way that the wife respects her husband and submits to him as unto the Lord, when they look in and they see your marriage, they say, oh, that's what Jesus is like. That's what our marriages should look like. And if you hear that and you think, I've got no idea how to do that. My marriage does not look like that. And, and I don't even know how to get it there. If that is your response, friend, you are in a very good company. None of us are perfect at this. We are all striving with God's help in this. And so maybe for some of you, this is just your first step, is to admit that, that God holds your marriage in a high regard and yours is falling short. And just admit that you need help. And then come get it. Husbands, can I talk to you for a minute? Just man to man? Husbands, I think this is especially a way that you can step up and lead in your marriages. If you know that your marriage is not reflecting the gospel the way that God intended it to, you be the one to ask for help. And don't wait for your wife to say, you know, I think that's us. Ask for help, guys. Look around and see another brother in our church who looks like he knows what he's doing and admit that you could use some advice. Or meet with a pastor, talk to one of us and say, I need help. Or sign your family up for biblical counseling. Or, you know what, just read a book. Do something. Lead in your home. Love your wife. Press on to make your marriage look like the gospel. That's all the time we're going to spend on, on verse 10. Like I said, a lot of it we looked at last week, and you can go listen to that sermon. Um, Ryan also said last week that we're going to do a podcast about divorce that is still forthcoming. Pastor Ryan got sick this week, and so we had to push it back, but we will get that podcast out to you. Um, but, but I just want us to take away from verse 10 and everything we looked at last week, that's what we have to keep in mind here, that we need to hold our marriages in a high regard. That's what Jesus has been saying. That's what the disciples are understanding but then they respond, and they say, well, then we shouldn't get married at all. And of course, that's a wrong response, as we said. But this is where the text gets really surprising, because Jesus doesn't totally dismiss that idea that someone might choose to not get married for the glory of God. And so this brings us to our second point, the honor of singleness. And we're going to spend most of our time here this morning the honor of singleness. In verse 11, Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now this is by far one of Jesus' strangest teachings in the Bible. Uh, if you don't know what a eunuch is, how do I put this delicately? Uh, a eunuch is a man who is physically unable to have children. Uh, sometimes this is due to a natural birth defect, but uh, in the ancient Near East where Jesus is, um, it was many times a result of a special surgery that a man would get to intentionally emasculate himself. And it may surprise you that eunuchs come up uh, more than once in the Bible. We see them a lot uh, in these stories where God's people are interacting with pagan kingdoms. And the eunuchs are court officials or, or high-ranking uh, officers in these pagan palaces. The reason that eunuchs probably had that special role in these pagan courts was that the king could trust that the eunuch wasn't going to do anything inappropriate with his many wives because it was physically Impossible. But the eunuch was, in the pagan society, actually a position of high honor. It was an honored position. Now, for the Jewish people, becoming a eunuch was actually not an honorable thing to do. The book of Leviticus says that eunuchs are not allowed to even enter into the temple. They are restricted in their access to the worship of God. And so that makes this question all the more interesting. Why does Jesus talk about eunuchs here? And why is this his response to what the disciples just said in verse 10? Well, clearly this is an illustration 
This is almost like a, a parable that Jesus is doing of sorts. He calls this a saying in verse 11. He says, let me tell you this saying that you should receive. And in verse 12, he says, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Well, that sounds really similar to how Jesus introduces parables elsewhere in the Bible. Let the one with ears to hear, hear it. So, so I say that we should not read what Jesus is saying here literally. And sadly, some in church history have made that mistake. And I'm not going to go there. But this is a figurative illustration that Jesus is making, a spiritual point. I think the, the key to understanding that is just that phrase, kingdom of heaven. So this teaching, just like so many of Jesus' parables and his other teaching, it is about the kingdom. It is about the renewed community of disciples who live together under the reign of Christ in a way that, that reflects heavenly realities as they're living it out here on earth. They are doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is talking about that with this strange teaching about eunuchs. What he's saying is that there are going to be some people in the kingdom, the disciples, who will choose not to get married. And therefore, they will choose to abstain from sexual intercourse because that is preserved for marriage. They will even choose by that to not have children. They will choose to live like eunuchs in a way. And why? Why would they do that? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So to put this really simply... This teaching right here is Jesus speaking to single people, to single Christians, to unmarried disciples who serve in his kingdom. And just like Jesus was heightening our regard for marriage, now he is doing the same thing for singleness. He is heightening the honor with which we should view singleness. Jesus is trying to teach us that, that we would know that marriage is not the only viable way for someone to glorify God and to serve him in his kingdom. And this would have been especially surprising for Jesus' audience because the Jewish culture saw marriage and having children as something of a necessity. There were even some rabbis at the time who taught that the only way that you could obey God's law was to have children. And so it was terribly dishonorable to not have children. In their society, it was, it was viewed as like your heritage, your name was being cut off if you didn't have children. It was dishonorable. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not it at all. He says, of course, marriage is good and children are good. We should hold it in high regard, just like I said. So, so Jesus is not pitting marriage and singleness or marriage and celibacy against each other. He's not saying that celibacy is somehow more holy than marriage. I think this is where our Roman Catholic friends have, have their, their views are wrong about the priesthood and about monastic orders. He is not saying that there is something better, but he's saying that they are both equally good. Because they are not, they are, they are both pointing some way to the most ultimate reality in all of our relationships. That there is something greater and more lasting, something that physical marriage only points to, and that is the eternal reality of the kingdom. And so while many people, probably even most people, will choose to glorify God through marriage and by having kids, not every Christian can. And not every Christian will. And with this teaching, we know that those, those people are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. But instead, they have been set apart and honored for a very different kind of ministry in the church. So this is why the metaphor of the eunuch, once you kind of get over the weirdness of it, it's actually a really powerful metaphor that Jesus is using because in these pagan societies, the eunuch was a position of honor. They were someone that had chosen not to pursue marriage and procreation, and by making that choice, they have freed themselves up for a very unique, a very special kind of service that nobody else in the kingdom could serve. And so again, the, the actual practice of eunuchs in the, new, the ancient Near East, that was, that was wrong. That was messed up. They shouldn't have done it like that. But it's sort of like Christ is redeeming that picture from their culture. And he is applying it not to pagan kingdoms, but to the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying there are some people who will choose not to be married, who will choose not to have children, and that frees them up for this really special, very unique service in the kingdom of God. 
And it's cooler than even that because there's this amazing messianic significance to what Jesus is saying. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 56, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and he promises in chapter 56 uh, eternal salvation for God's faithful remnant. And if you're familiar with Isaiah, the salvation for God's faithful people, it comes through the suffering of his servant, the Messiah, who, who will suffer on behalf of the people so that he can redeem them and renew them and make them righteous again. So, so in Isaiah 53, we have the suffering servant who redeems his people. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah talks about how God is going to bring this eternal salvation to the faithful. And in 56, God turns to encouraging eunuchs in this community. In Isaiah 56.3, he says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. I'm unfruitful. I don't have children. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's, an, it's a beautiful promise. It's a beautiful promise for God to make to these people who in the past were restricted from full access into the covenant community. It's a beautiful promise to make to people who struggle with not having children now. It's a beautiful promise that Jesus in Matthew 19 is saying is true and it's true in him and it's true in his kingdom. So we can see this strange teaching that Jesus gives us is actually one more fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that we have seen scattered throughout the book of Matthew. And then, of course, I'm sure many of you are thinking of this, that, that Isaiah 56 prophecy, it also gets fulfilled in a kind of different way in Acts chapter 8, when one of the first Gentiles to hear the gospel is an Ethiopian eunuch, an official in the court of the queen, and they believe the gospel. He believes the gospel, and he is brought fully into inclusion in the people of God. No more restrictions for eunuchs in the kingdom of God, not like in the book of Leviticus. But here in Matthew 19, Jesus is saying, he's promising that in his kingdom, the single and the unmarried, those who cannot have children, they get honor, they get a legacy. They get a heritage in him that is eternal and it is better than anything that they could get in this life because it's ultimately not about this life. All of this points to your marriage to Christ as a part of his church. So even if you are not participating in a physical marriage right now, please remember that all marriages are temporary. With his higher regard, as Jesus calls us to hold our marriages in, we, we can't ever forget that our marriages are not eternal. In just a few chapters, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, we're going we're gonna to see Jesus interacting with another gotcha question. And he's going to respond by teaching this, that in the resurrection of the dead, people will no longer marry, nor be given in marriage, but will be like angels in heaven. So if you're married now, and even if it's a wonderful God-glorifying marriage, your marriage is temporary. It serves a temporary purpose in this age to be a source of common grace in the world and to be a picture of the gospel. And if God wills, it's supposed to be a structure for the support and the training up of godly offspring. But in eternity, your marriage is going to give way to the marriage, the marriage with Christ. And, and listen, don't, I, I know that sometimes you hear that, and that, if that's new for you, it can be like, but I love my husband. I love my wife. I want to be married to them. You will be closer to your spouse in the new heavens and the new earth than you are right now. And you will be closer to every other Christian in the same way. So it's not less, it's more. Your marriage is looking forward to more. And if you're not married, know that. Know that you do have a marriage that is ahead of you, that you are waiting for when the whole church is together and brought into that perfect, perfect, lasting fellowship with the bridegroom. So my single brothers and sisters here in the room, that fellowship that I know that you long for, 
that companionship that you desire, even the physical pleasure that you are abstaining from right now, please know that all of that longing will be satisfied. It will. And I know it can be hard. I had a, sing- a season of singleness, and it lasted way longer than I wanted it to. I know. I know that you bear a certain burden in the calling that God has called you to. But let me just encourage you to wait just a little bit longer. Your hope is not in your relationship status changing in this life. Your hope is in the eternal relationship that you already have with God through Jesus Christ and that will be fulfilled in the coming of the kingdom. Okay, so just wait a little longer. Your maker is your husband's, Isaiah 54, 5. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 11. Look forward to that day. But I'm thankful that that's not all the Bible has to say to you, my unmarried brothers and sisters. Just wait a little longer. That's not all that Jesus has for you right now in this life. With this teaching of Matthew 19, Jesus is saying that if you are unmarried, and even if you haven't chosen that for yourself, it it feels like God has really chosen it for you. And I'm not going to spend time this morning getting into the intricacies of those that have decided for their entire life that they are going to be single and devoted to the Lord, and those that, that despite their best efforts, continue to be single and devoted to the Lord, okay? This is something to talk more in uh, one-on-one or with your groups or with a pastor. But, but if that is you, if you are unmarried, Jesus is trying to say that you, right now, have an honorable role in the kingdom, You have a unique and valuable way that you serve in the body right now, and it is worthy of honor. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time there talking about the value of singleness, even the wisdom of pursuing singleness long term. And there's a lot in that chapter. I'm not going to unpack it this morning, but the summary of Paul's point is that if you are unmarried, this is the value in it. If you are unmarried, your attention is undivided. That's the word that Paul uses. You are undivided in your devotion to the Lord and the carrying out of God's kingdom purposes in the world. Married people and people with kids, therefore, are divided in their ministry efforts. And Paul says that they are anxious about a lot of things. And as a husband and a dad of three little kids, I can say, amen, Paul. Yes, I am often anxious about a lot of things, how to take care of my wife, how to take care of my family. And then on top of that, how to be devoted to the Lord with the time that I have. I am divided. Even as a full-time pastor, my ministry is necessarily limited by the demands I have of being a husband and a father. And that's good. It would be wrong for me to sacrifice my family and my kids so that I can serve more in the church. They are my first ministry. But that means I have less to give. But if you're single, even if you don't plan on being single forever, okay? Just if this is you right now, if you're single, please recognize that you have so much undivided attention that you can give to the Lord and to his kingdom. You have time that we don't have. You have flexibility that I don't have. You have opportunities that us married folks just can't take advantage of. So think about how you can spend that attention in a way that builds up the kingdom of God in that unique role that only you can fill. I was thinking of some examples. You could serve in our homeless ministry and share the gospel in places and in contexts that, frankly, it would be unsafe for me to bring my kids to. You can go there. You can share the gospel there. You could open up your home to host a community group. You could serve in our youth ministry. You could serve on the music team. You could, you could just devote yourself to more prayer for the life of our church. You could help care for widows. You could serve the homebound. You could even... Think about how you might go serve as a missionary overseas in a place that it would be very hard to raise a family in. But you have that opportunity. You have that freedom to go and do that. 
And I want to say all of those examples that I just thought of, those are examples that are happening by single people in our church right now. They are already doing that. But it's not just in formal structures like that, that you can play a unique role. I think one of the best ways that you can serve in this unique office that Christ has called you to is just by blessing other families in our church. My family has a really sweet friend, a sister, a single woman, and I'm not going to put her on the spot. I'm not going to say her name. But as I was studying this passage, I just kept on thinking of her and how good an example she is of this. Because it wasn't long after we got to know her, and she was just at our house all the time, eating meals with us and spending time with us, and she just started serving our family. She would walk our dog on the days where I had to get up really early for elders' meetings, and Kristen couldn't do it because she was pregnant or had a little baby. She would just come over and walk our dog. She's teaching my daughter how to crochet. She draws pictures with my son. She babysits a lot, just for free, just comes and watches our kids so that me and Kristen can get out. And I don't mean to imply that she's doing this like she's some servant in our house. That's not it at all. It's like, it's like she's a cool aunt. My kids love her. We love her. But she's just so intentionally using the time and the flexibility that she has to bless my family in a season where we really feel divided. And she's investing in my kids. She's teaching my kids. She's loving my kids. And, and she's not just doing this for my family. She's doing it for our church. She's been serving with DSC kids. She helps with special events when it's hard for other people to, to watch in the child care. She spends time with other single people. What I'm trying to get at is this woman is worthy of honor. So much honor for how she's using her singleness in this really special way to bless our church and to bless me. But I also know that it's a blessing for her. She's told me so. And so I think her service, for her, it is a picture of that Isaiah 56 promise being fulfilled. She lives by herself. She doesn't have kids of her own. Maybe she will someday, but, but even now she's getting to experience the blessings of that life in the kingdom, that heritage that's better than sons or daughters, that's anticipating the fulfillment in eternity. Because when you come into the kingdom, no matter what your relational status is, no matter who's coming along with you, you gain a family. And you play a very important part in that family. That's what this last point really drives home for us. So we'll see here how this all fits together. So this is your third point, the humility of children. Verse 13, it says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So remember, there's big crowds here. They're following Jesus. Parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. This wouldn't be uncommon. The parents want this well-known, prominent rabbi to, to pray a blessing over their kids. And then in verse 13, the disciples rebuked the people for bringing their kids to Jesus. They're saying, no, no, no. Jesus doesn't have time to pray for your kids. He's got more important things to, to worry about. Remember what we saw. Jesus is on a mission, right? He is making his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way to the cross. That's really, really important. Surely Jesus doesn't have time to, to pray over some kids. It's also helpful to think that in, in this culture, at this time, children had no value in society. They had no status in society. They were uh, annoying. They were dependent. They needed to be instructed. They were, they were not a, a full part of society. So they're saying, of course, Jesus doesn't care about your children. That response from the disciples is not surprising. What is surprising is that Jesus rebukes them for it. In verse 14, Jesus said, No, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, I think it's really timely that we have come to this passage in our study because, as many of you know, our church has been having a renewed conversation about the age at which we will admit young people into membership in our church. And we have set that age at the age of 16 years old. And there's a lot of reasons for why we set that age for membership at 16. We've outlined those in a lot of other places. I can point you in that right direction afterwards. But, but it has been a conversation. And it's been a conversation that I've been really grateful for. I have been so encouraged by getting to sit down with other members of our church as we search the scriptures together to see if it really is so. And as I've been having those conversations with people, this passage comes up. 
Jesus said, don't hinder the children. Let them come to me. Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. So when we set our membership age at 16, aren't we misapplying this passage? Aren't we disobeying Jesus? It's a good question. Let's look really closely at what these verses are saying because they're easy to misunderstand. In fact, they have been misunderstood uh, often, and they're pressed into the service of, I think, some wrong theology, especially the baptism of babies. This is the, most churches that baptize babies will point to this as the very first text for why they do that. Well, we don't do that here, so we need to understand what this passage is saying and to study it carefully. And the first thing that we should see when we look at this passage is that, well, Jesus really does love children. He does. Of course he does. They're tiny little humans made in his image. Of course he loves them. And more than that, because they are those that are of less value in society, they're the ones that are weak, they're the ones that are dependent. Well, those are exactly the kind of people that Jesus has been loving on through the entire book of Matthew. So, so we can confidently say that, yes, Jesus loves children. And more than that, I can confidently say that Jesus loves your children in particular. Do you know how I know that? Because he put them in your family. He chose for those kids to be born in your home where they will be loved and protected, and you will teach them the gospel. You will train them up in the way that they should go, that you will instruct them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Jesus did that to your kids by putting them in your home. He loves your kids, and it is right for you, parents, to bring your kids to Jesus the way that these parents are here in Matthew chapter 19. That's right. Now, to be clear, bringing your kids to Jesus is not the same as bringing them to church. Your job as parents is to be the primary disciple makers in the home. It is your job to teach them about Jesus. We are here to help you as a church. But I will point out that fully one-third of our facilities are set aside for training up your children on a Sunday morning. So yes, we should bring our kids to Jesus. Jesus loves our children. We should teach the gospel to our children. God saves little children, even very young children. We believe all of that. But the question is, is that what this passage is primarily about? About how children are saved and come into the church. Is that what this passage is about? Notice that there is no mention of these kids believing. If anything, this is the parents' faith that is on display here, isn't it? The parents have some kind of faith in Jesus and are bringing their kids in light of that. But, but we certainly do not believe that people are brought into the kingdom because of their parents' faith, do we? That is the mistake that I think our Baptist brothers and sisters make. It is not the parents' faith. It is not the parents' involvement in a covenant community in the kingdom that saves children. We all come into the kingdom the same way. By believing in Jesus. And I want to do this for just a moment. Hey, kids, little kids, all of you, look up. Kiddos, look at me. Wake up. <laughs> little kids, or young men and women, raise your hand if you did not drive yourself to church this morning. Raise your hand. Let me see him high. Let me see him high. All right. Did you drive yourself to church this morning? No. No. Someone brought you to church today, didn't they? Praise God. You need to thank them for that because they are trying to share with you the most important news that you will ever hear. But just the fact that they brought you here does not mean that you are going to heaven. Just the fact that your mom and dad or your grandma or grandpa or whoever brought you to church just because they believe in Jesus that doesn't mean that you are going to heaven. You have to believe in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus. You need to learn about Jesus. So if you have questions about Jesus, talk to your mom or dad. Talk to somebody that brought you. Talk to our volunteers here. It is up to you because we don't go to heaven because our parents are going to heaven. We believe in Jesus ourselves. That's how we're saved. That's how we're forgiven. And so kids believe in Jesus. Because that's how we all enter the kingdom, by believing in Jesus. That's what the kingdom 
is. That's what Jesus is teaching us right here. Look again very closely at verse 14. Jesus says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is made of ones like these. Jesus isn't saying here that he is giving the kingdom to little children. He's saying that the kingdom is comprised of people who are like little children. Do you understand the difference? Maybe it would help to just turn back one page to chapter 18. You look at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So do you see what Jesus is doing in Matthew 19? He's just saying the same thing that he already said in chapter 18. Okay, This is not a teaching about how or when children are to come into the church. Those are good conversations. Let's keep having that conversation. But we need to understand what these verses are actually about. It is about how all believers come into the kingdom, and that is by becoming like little children and approaching God as our heavenly Father. That's the point that Jesus is really driving at here. And that's why he didn't want the disciples to hinder the little children from coming to him because they're these toddling parables that Jesus can hold up and say, you all have to be like this if you want to come into the kingdom because children don't trust in their own accomplishments. They're not too proud to admit when they need help. When a child makes a mess, he knows that he has to look to someone else to clean it up. And that's the gospel. That's how the kingdom works. You humble yourself like a child. My son is three years old, and he has found this new way of asking for help. I don't know where he got it, but he will just say, I'm having a hard time. So he's at the dinner table, and he's trying to get his green beans on the fork, and then he just goes, Dad, I'm having a hard time. (laughs) It's really funny. But how slow are we to admit that? Gosh, as adults, it's so easy for us to think we've got it all together or to feel like we have to have it all together, to get it all together before we can come into the kingdom. No, you just have to cry out to God, I'm having a hard time. I have made a mess, and I cannot clean it up. I cannot save myself. Pick me up. And God will. God does. You must come humbly and dependently and obediently to God your Father like a little child. And then you will know the amazing truth that God really does love you the way that a perfect father does. He cherishes you. He protects you. He nurtures you. And even if he disciplines you, it is from a place of love and correction for your good. The father loves you. And a father's love never runs out. And this is how God our Father loved you, that he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins so that your mess can be cleaned up, but not by you, but by the one who died to wash you white as snow. And not only through the death of Christ and his resurrection are you forgiven of your sins, not only are you redeemed and renewed, but you are adopted You are made a daughter or a son of God, and you are forever brought into his family. That's the good news of what Jesus is teaching here in this section, that you can become a child of God, but you have to humble yourself. And so now let's just step back and let's look at this all together, because I think it's neat to see what Matthew is doing here, how he told these stories in this order. You remember Matthew 19 begins with teaching about marriage, And then it moves to talk about singleness. And then it considers children. 
and then especially the spiritual sense that, that we all come into the kingdom like children. And so that implies this, this relationship to our father of being a son and a daughter. So do you see how all of this is hitting on these different relational aspects of the kingdom? Well, all of this is just anticipating what's going to get unpacked more in the New Testament. That the primary way, get this, the primary way that the Bible talks about what we are in the kingdom, how we relate to one another in the church, it's in relational terms. It's in specifically family categories. That's how the Bible teaches us to think about each other and the roles that we play in his kingdom. That the kingdom of heaven is a family And yes, it's made up of physical families. It's made up of husbands and wives and moms and dads, but not always. And it transcends those physical relationships because the kingdom is bigger and better and more lasting and more eternal and a more important spiritual family. Do you understand that? There are a lot of important things about your physical family, but it's temporary. The lasting thing is the kingdom family and the role that we play in it. That we are all sons and daughters through adoption. And because of that, we are all brothers and sisters. Think about this. You, you will not be married forever if you're married. But you will always be a son or daughter. You will always be the bride of Christ as part of the church. And you will always be brothers and sisters. That's a lasting relationship. That's an eternal relationship. And so we live out our relationships now as brothers and sisters who are called to love each other like siblings And to have those relationships of mutual care and accountability. And you know what? Even fun. Do you have fun with your brothers and sisters? I know that I have fun with my little brothers. Guys, have fun with each other. You're a family. But what we should also remember about our family is that just like your physical families, Lord willing, the kingdom family grows. It gets bigger. There are more children added to it. But of course, the kingdom doesn't grow through procreation. It grows through recreation. It doesn't just grow by us having physical kids. It doesn't even grow through us adopting kids. But it grows through the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. The kingdom family grows by sinners coming to faith and repentance and being adopted into this family. So what I want to leave you with is this. That this is how we grow in maturity up into Christ who is our head, is when we understand these two things, that first, the whole purpose of the church right now is to grow, is to make disciples. It is to bring together people into that bride of Christ through belief. But then secondly, in this family that is growing, every one of you has a unique role to play. Every one of you is an honored and valuable part of our family. And so you should lean into those roles. As I said, we hold marriage in high regard. If you're married, if you're a husband, or if you're a wife, press in to make your marriage look like the gospel. But remember that your little nuclear family, that's not just a unit for the nurture of your physical kids. That is not just a unit that is there for for the nurture of your own biological family. Your marriage, your family exists for the nurture of other brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas. So if you're married and you have kids, and I know it's hard, it's, it's so easy to just lean into other relationships with people that are in the exact same season of life that you're in because you hang out at the same playgrounds all the time. But if you're married please don't overlook the unmarried people in our church. Please don't overlook the single people in our church. And I don't just mean the young single people. I mean the divorced. I mean widows, widowers. Don't overlook them. Invite them in. Serve them. And let them serve you. And if you're here and you're older, and you had kids, but your kids are out of the house now, Please don't stop thinking that you're a mother or a father in the church. Please don't retire from serving in the kingdom of God. I know that you did a lot of hard work. Praise God to you. But we need your help, us young parents. We don't know what we're doing. You're an expert. And you have 
a unique calling in your life, a unique season in your life, a unique flexibility and opportunity in your life. So please take advantage of it. Maybe even as I was talking about bringing kids to Jesus, you know what, there are a lot of kids in our community that don't have good parents that are going to bring them to Jesus. Maybe you can fill that role in their life. Or you know what, your kids are out of the house, praise God, you're an empty nester, you should move to another country and tell them about Jesus. Because you can. Oh, how are you going to use this season of your life to build up the kingdom family? One simple application for all of us, let's eat more meals together. That's what families do, isn't it? They spend time together. That's a great way to, to get people from different seasons of life and different callings and stations in the church together. Just have each other over in your homes for meals. Maybe even on the way home today, lunch. Hey, come with us. Join us for lunch today. Come do this. And lastly, I want to speak again to those of you who are single, if you're unmarried. Please know that you are an honored official in our kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for being such a gift to our church. And I pray that you are encouraged to look for more opportunities to bless our church and our family with this unique station that you have in your life. And I pray that you really do feel honored by our church. And I pray that we would grow in honoring you more. But most of all, I would pray that you will hope in Christ. I pray that you will remember that Jesus is your husband and that those messianic promises are already being fulfilled in your life, at least in part, right now. And there will be a day where you will see them come in glory in the kingdom when you are surrounded by all of the spiritual fruit of your labors right here and now. Let's pray for that. God, what a beautiful thing is the family of faith that you have brought us into, and I pray that you would, all of us, help us to uh, understand and identify with the roles that you have called us to, and that we would lean into them, that we would seek to be devoted to you in whatever way that we can, and Lord, that you would help our church to be more like a family as we rest in this amazing promise that we have been adopted, that we have been cleaned up, We have brought in to that relationship with you that you are our Father and you love us and you will love us forever because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.